0: Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class.
1: Go ahead and open us up in prayer here. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for this time and opportunity to spend together in your word. Uh, I pray that you would bless our attempts to understand the words that you would have for us more and our attempts to draw closer to you through your word, God. Um, Please let this be an enriching evening of time in your word, God. Uh, Please uh, guide my words. Let me speak what you would have. Everybody here and not what I would necessarily want to say. Um, Again, thank you for this, Lord, and bless us in this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. We are in Psalm 22, uh, the title of which, uh, aptly, is Why Have You Forsaken Me? So um, out of the opener, uh, most of it is fairly standard that we've kind of seen already. Um, but we do have here this little note, uh, according to the Doe of the Dawn. Um, and uh, in researching this, I've heard many people try to interpret those words to mean kind of a variety of things, uh, from an, uh, pardon me, an abstract image of an instrument, which did not make sense, uh, to an even more abstract symbol of Israel, uh, or David, or even God. Um, Spurgeon even pointed out in his commentary that a commentator commentator that he had read believed that it should be translated um, The Morning Hind or The Morning Deer, uh, assuming that it was a collective name of musicians, i.e. like a band name. But (laughs) none of those really seem to fit. Uh, The best explanation I've got is that Uh, According to some commentators, there most likely was a known song at the time called The Doe of the Dawn, and that this particular psalm was designed to fit that music. Uh, Much like, for us, how if you take, like, like, uh, the songs we teach children, ABC song, and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and Baba Black Sheep, they're all the same song, just with different words. So it's probably that sort of a situation here. Uh, So if you're not already aware of the implications of this psalm, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and put this right up front. This is one of the most messianic prophetic psalms in the book. Um, Specifically, it's the psalm that Jesus quotes while he's on the cross. Uh, Some commentators even go as far as to suggest that perhaps he did quote the entire psalm and that is just recorded at the beginning to suggest that uh, ending it with the, it is finished. Now, I don't know that there's any real evidence to support that. Um, not trying to present it as fact, um, but I do want to help put the right mindset to it that this Psalm is absolutely what he was referencing. Um, For the part of David writing this Psalm, we can only imagine that he wrote it at a particularly dark place in his life. Whether he was fleeing from Saul, or Absalom, or in some other danger, the fact that he writes this song, or the assumed fact that he writes this song to an existing tune, uh, kind of suggests a level of urgency. Um, He doesn't have the luxury, the time, the comfort that might be necessary to compose a song as he's used to, um, then to consider how it should be performed, how it should be uh, sung, like we see with a lot of his other psalms in the notes at the beginning. Um, The structure of this psalm can be divided into thirds, I would say. Uh, Verses 1 to 10 present uh, an appeal from opposition to the covenantal relationship with God, Um, that opposition specifically more non-physical, more conceptual in nature. Uh, Verses 11 to 21 present an appeal from physical harm, actual physical harm, and Uh, Finally, 21 to 31 give us a kind of a beautiful picture of deliverance and salvation. Um, Also, uh, as we read it, you'll note David claims some pretty intense imagery, and he applies that to his situation. Uh, On face value, he's kind of drastically exaggerating his situation for the sake of poetic form to, to display how he feels. Uh, In reality, the extremity of his emotion is being led and used by the Holy Spirit to accurately prophesy Jesus. Um, I'm also going to reject the idea um, that some present uh, that David never intended any part of this to be about himself. Um, While the psalm does clearly point to Jesus... I think those who suggest that it has no link to David are simply overexcited about the prophetic implications, and they kind of fail to understand poetic extremes. Um, Spurgeon said, I think this is a good quote, David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. Um, So with that in mind, as we read through it, I think what I'm going to do is try to point out the poetic extremes of what David might actually be trying to suggest about himself. Um, But primarily, along with that, I do want to point to what the psalm accurately does describe about Jesus. So uh, that being said, um, especially for anybody who's listening to this down the road, I do want to put out a minor warning. I will most likely be covering some very intense and visceral things over the course of this particular psalm. Um, I do think it's important information to cover. I just wanted to give a little heads up so it doesn't take anyone by surprise. Uh, This psalm does have a lot to do very specifically with the death of Jesus Christ, with the crucifixion itself. So, that being said, let's hop right into it. We'll start with uh, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Okay, so those first words, we know them very well from, uh, or at least the, um, the Aramaic version of those words from the New Testament, the Eloi, Eloi, lama that Jesus says. That's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it's literally the same thing that Christ cries from the cross. For David, uh, this, this exemplifies that feeling of being alone. We've seen this in his poetry several times, the, the times when everything seems to be lost and God seems to be far away. Uh, for Jesus, this first line that was spoken, it's not singularly a cry to God like it is for David. It is, absolutely. Yes, Jesus is using David's word to express how he feels at the moment, but using these specific words does a dual purpose. Um, It was basically known at the time that when a rabbi or a teacher, a teacher of the scripture that is, spoke a piece of scripture, they may very well have been intending for the hearer to take the rest of that passage and apply it to the situation. So for example, if if I happen to be judging someone harshly, uh, especially if it's for a sin that I struggle with, Someone I respect as a fellow believer might come to me and say, "Hey man, before you remove the respect from—pardon me, hey man—before you remove the speck from your brother's eye, hmm, and just leave it there." And it would be expected that I would know the rest of that passage. Examine yourself. That—that that will take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother. So that you know he should just have to say that one thing, and I should know what he's getting at and then take the message to myself. So uh, if a rabbi then were to speak the first line of a psalm, and mind you, as we've discussed previously, psalms were commonly and corporately sung. So a faithful Jewish hearer would be expected to then mentally go to the fullness of that psalm. So I would submit that in this case, um, what Jesus is saying when he's on the cross uh, he's saying it, yes, because he is crying out to God, but also because he's expecting those around him to take what he's saying and then consider these specific words that we're going to cover tonight, um, which only makes it more, I think, frustrating for us when we read the account of Jesus on the cross when they completely misinterpret what he says or, uh, and try to you know, say it's, he's saying something else. Um, So keep that in mind as we we read on. Uh, Verse 2, I think, is uh, interesting to us because it's so easy to see that as simply an image of feeling lost, Um, but here's the thing. How often do we read that, I think, with the additional implication? Uh, Yes, the speaker does not feel as though he has been heard in his pleas to God, but note that there's no implication of ceasing here. This is a continual cry. Um, that whole idea of do you feel as though your prayers are falling unheard? Okay, well, yes, of course. You know, Good counsel is to first check to make sure that what you're praying for is in line with God's word. But second is keep going. Don't stop. You know, that cry by day and that cry by night, that doesn't mean he did it one day and one night. That's a continual statement. Um, I thought there were two really cool quotes on this. Uh, one by Spurgeon and one by Calvin. Uh, Spurgeon said, no daylight is too glaring, and no midnight too dark to pray in, and no delay or apparent denial, however grievous, should tempt us to forbear from importunate pleading. That idea of there's no, there's, there shouldn't be anything to stop you from continuing to cry out to your God, even if you don't think you're getting an answer. Um, and Calvin's, that one kind of hit, hit home for me too there's not one of the godly who does not daily experience in himself the same thing. According to the judgment of the flesh, he thinks he is cast off and forsaken by God, while yet he apprehends by faith the grace of God, which is hidden from the eye of the sense and reason. So, now also to take that idea, the cry by day and the cry by night, and apply that to Jesus, well, The cry by night with no rest, doesn't that sound awfully like when he was in the garden while his fellow uh, disciples, you know, around him were falling asleep and he's crying out to God um, without rest. And then cry by day with no answer, well, that's the very picture of him on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what we're, you know, this very easily applies to Christ in his his suffering there. Uh, Let's move on to verses 3 to 5, um, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them, to you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. So I think, I think this is very important to understanding this verse, uh, both in David and Christ's contexts. Uh, David is suffering in, in fear, right? Um, and he's definitely going to get darker with it. But right up front, he forces himself to recall God's goodness. You know, He gives a little interlude into what's coming. But before he really gets into it, he, he makes sure to put that stamp of, I understand God's faithfulness right up front. Um, and I think that's a good reminder to us. It's, it's one thing to wonder why God has or has not done a thing, but we need to always kind of temper our wondering, our questions and petitions to God with the knowledge that he is holy and that he has proven himself faithful in the past. A really quick quote from Spurgeon on this. He said, we may not question the holiness of God, but we may argue from it and use it as a plea in our petitions. Um, for Jesus, I think he's reminding the hearer of why he's doing what he's doing. Um, our fathers, you know, it says that they're the ones who came before, uh, the ones who did not have this salvation yet, still they put their trust in God, and God delivered them. Uh, and to be clear, in the context of what's happening, Jesus on the cross, he's delivering them at this very moment. You know, this, this psalm is applying to what's actually happening as it's being essentially lived out and spoken. Where it says, uh, because of God's faithfulness um, and deliverance. Uh, Those who had faith in him were not put to shame. Uh, Remember, shame is the result of the fall, right? Adam and Eve stood before the Lord naked on their first day with no shame. But after their sin, they felt shame. God's deliverance is an end to shame before God. on. Verses six to eight. Uh, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Uh, Note here, as we just talked about God's deliverance being an end to shame, right? Um, But here, in that first statement, the speaker, whether it being David and being Jesus, now claims that shame. That statement of, I am a worm, that's the lowliest of things for them. Um, for David, he's getting kind of self-pitiful. You know? uh, there's that sense of like, God's answered other men, but I'm a worm. I'm the lowest. You know, why do I expect something from him? Um, it may be that for a moment, he's, he's almost even taken upon himself the view assigned to him by his enemies. Um, But for Jesus, it's it's a a drastic contrast to his nature. Um, In Spurgeon's commentary on this psalm, he he talks about the horrific contrast in this, this phrasing, that God's name for himself, I am that I am, and this statement being applied to Jesus from Jesus, if he's quoting this in relation to himself, saying, I am a worm saying that in that moment upon the cross, taking both the present physical scorn as well as that eternal punishment for sin. You know, he, it's that, that idea, that statement that he has made himself low so that we could be redeemed. Um, in reference to how Jesus could make this statement of himself, uh, Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary, if he had not made himself a worm, he could not have been trampled upon as he was. Which I I thought that was very beautiful. Uh, And I think there is something to that concept. Uh, This is, it's gonna get way harsher before it gets better, but remember, you know, Christ took this on himself. He did it freely, he did it fully aware. None of this happened beyond his control or allowance. Uh, Keep that in mind as we go on, especially through the harsher bits. Jesus had the power to deny, to mute, to remove any of what occurred, but he allowed it all because no one else could. Um, Where it says, uh, scorned and despised. Uh, For David, this is how it feels to be on the run. This is how it feels to have a nation um, against you, even for superficial reasons. But for Jesus, again, this is absolutely literal. You know, he's hanging from the cross, which was already a sign of shame in their culture, uh, and being mocked and hated. Um, And mind you, this has been happening to him for the past day or so at this point, as he's been beaten and shuffled from one mock trial to another, while having this scorn and abuse just heaped on top of him. Um, That language there, uh, make mouths, to make mouths and to wag heads, Uh, Depending on your translation, it might say something along the lines of separate the lip or shoot out the lip. Uh, Wag heads might be shake the head. Um, The first, the the image that we're we're getting here is of shouting insults. Um, The word used there uh, for the first phrase is uh, to make, to shoot, to separate. Um, It basically both means to part something as an opening um, uh, but it also has an added context of escaping, the idea of the force by which someone might escape captivity or the way that a runner might burst from their starting position in a race. Um, basically, it's the idea that those against him, whether it be David or Jesus, cannot wait to get their insults out of their mouths. Um, and that you know it, when they have their opportunity, they, they shoot them out, they just spit them out. Um, and I will say alternatively, It could be a reference to certain facial gestures uh, used to show contempt or scorn. Uh, Like how we have sticking your tongue out at someone to show you disapprove, that kind of a thing. Um, The uh, the wag the heads line, um, it really just means to shake one's head kind of dismissively. Um, but I think also I wonder if there's not further connotation possibly representative of how like when you see people who are really frenzied kind of screaming and shouting about something, they tend to lose composure. And if you watch them, their heads do kind of waggle about a bit as they kind of froth and scream. Um, so that, that, there could be a little bit of that there too. Um, and take special note of how they mock. I think that's important for us as well. In both cases, they mock the speaker for appealing to God's favor. Um, Now for David, I think that this shouldn't be that shocking to us. Uh, Most of the people he ran from were often pretty set against God. Saul was consistently defying God. Absalom pretty clearly only cared about himself and other enemies of David often were from other cultures who already hated our God. So that sort of mocking kind of makes sense from his context. Um, For Jesus, though, these words, they should be more upsetting to us um, because they're coming from his fellow Israelites and actual teachers of scripture. Uh, Like, don't, don't even consider, just for a moment, don't consider the fact that it's Jesus, the deity of Jesus on that cross. These people are using the statement, he, the victim, trusts in God, so, mockingly, let God rescue him if God likes him so much. They're using that as an insult. These are literally the people who have been taught or are teaching that if you're in trouble, you call out to God. And now they're actively mocking that very act. Now add back into the equation that once again that Jesus is God. Jesus is literally in the process of rescuing them, and they mock him, saying, "If he loves, if he loves God so much, let God rescue him." Um, it's just) uh, I'm, I'm shocked at how blind our flesh can make us sometimes, and also not shocked at the same time. Um, and yeah, and remember how in verses 3 to 5, he said that those who trust in God are not put to shame, right? But here he describes this mocking, this being considered a worm. He describes this shame. Um, and where some may try to see a contradiction, I submit we see the beauty of God's plan. In the prior section, uh, he does describe how God removes the shame from those he saves. But how does he do it? Well, here in this passage, we see the shame has been applied to Jesus. He's claiming that on himself. He declares it upon himself so that we no longer have to bear it. He's literally making that passage true. He's actively making the way for those who trust in God to be rid of sin. Moving on to 9 to 11. Um, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Okay, so so far in this psalm, we've had this kind of back and forth between despair and trust, sorrow, hope. He kind of slingshots back and forth. Um, In this particular chunk, For David, I would submit this is a self-dedication. To say that he has trusted God since birth is basically to declare his life um, as belonging to God and to declare that he recognizes that his whole life has pointed him to his faith, whether he's always followed it or not. Um, But I think the reality of this statement should hit us in this way. What human being can truly say Without hyperbole or poetic license, that they have trusted God literally since they were born. That from the womb they knew God as God and trusted Him completely. Well, the only person that this has ever been true for is Jesus. Uh, As we come, you know, uh, from one harsh moment and we're about to move into a long and very harsh series of moments, uh, we're drawn, I would say, to consider that Jesus declares that faith in God is, is complete despite the situation he's in. Um, which we, we get a little lead into when we get to verse 11. We see trouble is near and there is none to help. Well, you know, none to help. How often has David clarified that God is the one who helps and saves? Um, so for, for him, of course, once again, this is that recognize, feeling alone. You know, he's, he's kind of hyperbolizing, going back on that concept. Um, but I would say this is, this is, again, a call to Jesus' sacrifice, to the payment for sins, the satisfaction of righteous wrath. There can be no one to help, as he's the only one who can do it. Of course no one else can help. Verses 12 to 13, uh, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Uh, So here we get a further image of the trouble surrounding him in either case. Uh, The bulls imply power and strength, uh, but also uh, a rage. Um, think of the classic image of a bullfighter with his red cloth, which turns out to be useless because bulls are colorblind. It's just the motion, anyway. Um, <laughs> that he kind of waves around and sends the bull into a fury, and it charges blindly. You know, it's that image of power and blind rage. Uh, furthermore, apparently, the um, the, the specific. Phrasing of strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan was a a nation to the north, I believe, of Israel that they had plenty of uh, conflict with. And apparently, in local mythology, um, their bulls were were like supernatural or something. They were very powerful. Uh, I I didn't get a lot of research on that one, but I feel I I believe that that's the situation. Like either. Um, bulls featured heavy into their mythology or their people would be compared to mighty bulls often. So that's a strong reference there. Um, The lions, that's, I think, self-explanatory. I think we all kind of get that image. Lions, they bite, they tear, they maul. um, And he describes them as ravening, that is hungry or vicious with hunger. Um, He's, I mean, that image for Jesus, he's literally hanging there as torn flesh before a crowd of vicious, ravenous people, like, like meat before a lion, so to speak, um, as they hunger for his death. Moving on to 14 to 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is where things get really harsh, Um, poured out like water. David is likely for himself describing the feeling of being drained by his stresses and troubles. Uh, Jesus was indeed literally poured out between the multiple beatings, uh, culminating in an act called the scourging, Um, which is a multiple whip-like device with sharp bits of metal and bone and such at the end um, that would would tear into his flesh, having a cloth placed onto his wounded back and ripped off again, the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and feet, and finally the spear driven into his side to verify his death, he was literally emptied like a vessel, emptied of its contents. People like to comment on the miraculous way in which Jesus seems to choose the moment of his physical death, Um, but I'd like to add on to that the further miracle that he even lasted that long. Um, It's difficult to believe that his body contained enough blood to even function at the point where he gave up his life freely, Um, where he says, uh, all my bones are out of joint. Yes, it's possible that David may have dislocated something while on the run or hiding or perhaps in a cave, but honestly, he's probably more so referring to the discomfort of literally hiding for one's life, not being able to sleep, probably sleeping you know, in caves, on rocks. Um, there's, so there's probably the, the bruising that would follow, the discomfort, um, that sort of a thing. For Jesus, to ensure that his, his uh, body was affixed to the cross correctly, it's highly likely that some of his bones were literally dislocated in the process. Um, more recent discoveries in, in Roman, Roman crucifixion records do suggest that often shoulders and hips were dislocated as people were uh, affixed to crosses. Um, when he says, uh, my heart is like wax melted in my breast, metaphorically, this is a symbol of sorrow. You know, especially for David. It's the idea that one's hope and drive to go on has melted away. Um, The idea that in poetic fashion, the nature of someone's heart told of their constitution. Um, For Jesus, if, if the line of Judah, you know, to speak of his heart poetically as melting away should suggest for us the most horrible of circumstances that one could imagine, as this heart should be able to endure far more than the greatest heart of mere humans. Uh, This would point, once again, back to the suffering placed upon Jesus caused by his taking the penalty for all of our sins. If the burden of this affected Jesus so, how could any of us even dream of having to deal with it on our own? Um, And if we take this as a literal item, which is possible, um, Scripture tells us that when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus to verify his death, blood and water poured forth. Um, There are actually a few, uh, I counted at least three, physiological, real-world reasons that this could have occurred. Um, But rather go into them specifically, the point is that due to the severe damage he endured, the severe bodily trauma, the remaining blood and fluids in Jesus' body would have been centralized, either in a last-ditch attempt by the body to stay alive or due to pooling due to the damage. Uh, and it would have been around the heart. So when the spear opened his side, his heart literally poured out the last of what it contained, as to say, melted away. Um, When he says, uh, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, basically the the image of uh, ancient pottery, a dry piece of a clay pot, it, it would have been rough to the touch as opposed to um, the soft, smooth feel of wet clay. Uh, and even some of that old clay pottery, uh, if it wasn't smoothed out, if it wasn't killed and glazed, um, it would be a little porous sometimes, even to the degree of uh, absorbing water. Uh, if you were to if it's really rough, if you were to even lick it, your tongue might stick to it because of how porous it is and the moisture on your tongue. Um, it's that's the, the image, once again, my tongue sticks to my jaws. It's that image of dehydration. You know, somebody who's in the position Jesus is in would literally have that phenomenon. There would be so little moisture that the mouth sticks together; the pieces of it stick to each other. Um, and yeah, and that's that. He would have been lacking in any fluids at that point. Um, for David, it's hard to find clean water when you're on the run. <laughs> and so, you know, so yeah, so he is feeling the pangs of thirst absolutely, and it's just an extreme image that he's giving us. Um, Verses 16 to 18, okay, just making sure. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, so the the first part here, that's a pretty easy metaphor. Um, The imagery easily fits with someone being hunted, the dogs, um, and Jesus on the cross being surrounded by those who want him dead. Um, That line there, though, they have pierced my hands and feet. Uh, That's, I think, kind of abundantly clear. (laughs) Um, David did not have his hands and feet pierced. Uh, Most likely what he was getting at in his situation was that he felt that his, his motions, his movements, his options were hindered. Um, That, like, the the piercing of the hands and feet were kind of the holding back, but it's also a painful image. Um, For Jesus, of course, we know that's the cross, that he was nailed to the cross. Now, I will add uh, some ancient manuscripts, I believe it's the Masoretic texts, um, which are generally accurate, uh, but in this one place, uh, they do word things a little differently. They say, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. And which some people argue that, well, see, this can't be about Jesus if it says, like, a lion. Even if that verbiage is the actual correct understanding, um, I argue it still makes the same point. Uh, for David, again, it's that image, hands and feet, it's the image of being hindered, and he's adding in the image of a fierce beak, uh, beak, beast attacking his hands and feet, preventing him from moving forward. For Jesus, what does a lion do to that which it attacks? It bites, or it claws, teeth, claws, piercing. Uh, Even if it's supposed to be a lion, I submit this is still a specific reference to the piercing, to the bloodying, to the puncturing of his hands and feet. Um, Where he says, uh, I can count my bones. For David, this is kind of a light metaphor. For Jesus, this one gets rough. Um, David's hungry. You don't typically eat well when you're on the run. Um, At one point, if you read his story, he even has to ask the Levites for some consecrated bread to keep him and his men alive because they have no access to food. For Jesus, some like to argue that it was a sign of hunger, um, or they like to argue that it was a verification that he hadn't broken any bones. I do kind of have to reject both of these suggestions. Um, the events of Jesus's trial and death did not occur over a long enough period of time for Jesus to show the physical effects of hunger. Um, He perhaps missed a day's worth of meals or so. Um, And uh, with regards to the idea that this is added verification that none of his bones were broken, which is true. None of his bones were broken, and that is in line with other prophecy we find elsewhere in Scripture. Um, The statement presented is it's to describe an active negative. It's, it's not a, a slight positive. The idea that I can count my bones is mentioned with the same goal as they have pierced my. Um, it's describing something bad actively happening, not to suggest something that did not happen. I The only way I can land on this, I'm led to believe that this is, again, a reference to the Roman scourging via the flagellum, that whip I mentioned with the multiple strands, the bone, the metal attached, those did massive and widespread damage to the body. It was not uncommon for men punished by those to die during the scourging, depending on how many strikes they were given. Those metal or bone pieces would occasionally strike major veins or arteries, uh, causing swift death by blood loss. Uh, sometimes it was simply a matter of cumulative damage. Um, you see in, in uh, intense continuous flogging, it would tear away massive areas of skin and expose or even damage vital organs. Uh, occasionally, this would cause so much superficial bleeding that the victim would, again, die of blood loss. Elsewhere in scripture, it actually tells us that Jesus was beaten so badly that he didn't even look like a recognizable person. Um, the very uncomfortable image here is that he was scourged so much, so harshly, that so much of his... Flesh had been torn that one could literally observe his bones in places. Um, I think I should also take a moment to dispel uh, a minor Christian myth that's kind of become popular over the past few years. Um, the, The suggestion that Jesus was only scourged with 39 strikes. The reason for this that people think that comes from the Old Testament um, there was an Old Testament rule that when a person was whipped as punishment, the man may only be struck a total of 40 times. To exceed that risks killing the person, and such an act would then subject the one wielding the whipped to severe punishment. As such, the Jews actually made a further rule that all whippings would end at 39, first to add mercy on top of punishment, but also to ensure that no one broke God's law. Um, but here's the thing, Jesus wasn't, First of all, he wasn't being whipped. That was a rule for a whipping punishment, which might sting or draw a little blood, but typically didn't kill anybody. Um, And secondly, this was being done by the Romans, not the Jews. They had no such law. Um, They went as far as they liked. And passages like this, I would suggest, uh, suggest to us that they went very far in this particular situation. Uh, and I know that's a really rough thing to take in, um, but hang in there. Uh, I think we're through the worst of it and we're aiming towards the upswing. Um, finally, that, that comment about dividing garments and casting lots for clothing. Uh, for David, the implication is that while he was on the run, his enemies ransacked his home and took uh, any of his fineries for themselves, possibly even gambling them amongst each other. The Gospels tell us that the Roman soldiers divided Jesus' clothing and literally gambled for his, his undergarment or his underrobe, um, because it was woven together as a seamless piece, which would actually make it kind of pricey, kind of valuable. Uh, And history actually confirms this. We have records uh, of Roman soldiers who were assigned execution duty um, because it was an unpleasant task that people generally didn't like. They were permitted as a result of this task to, uh, to have like an extra pay to take and divide the belongings of the crucified criminals. Remember, this was an extreme punishment that was usually for extreme crimes. So generally, the dead were bad people, not afforded the luxury of their belongings being given to somebody who knew them. So it kind of it became spoils for the people carrying out the task. When a garment had seams, it would make sense for them to pull it apart at the seams, so there were more pieces to equally divide among the men on execution duty, which usually wasn't a lot. Usually it was a small number of people uh, given the task, though there may have been other soldiers or guards present to make sure that they were not accosted in their duty. Um, With the garment, like the one mentioned, like Jesus's, it had no seams. It was one solid piece. So as I said, it makes it worth more. So they wouldn't want to tear it. They wouldn't want to cut it. That would devalue it. So they simply cast lots. They roll a die. High number gets it, basically, something like that. Um... Interesting side note, some commentators, uh, even Spurgeon actually, (laughs) use this specific section to suggest that all forms of gambling, specifically playing with dice, is evil. Um, There's a quote from Spurgeon, uh, which I thought was kind of fun. It may be noted that the habit of gambling is of all others the most hardening, for men could practice it even at the cross foot while besprinkled with the blood of the crucified. No Christian will endure the rattle of the dice when he thinks of this. Now, of course, I I can't fully agree with this. I can think of several habits that are just as hardening, um, if not more so, but I thought it worth bringing up here because it's easy to see how someone could even well-meaningly misuse a passage like this to make a particular act evil that Scripture does not call sinful. Um, In reality, uh, as I mentioned, it's not that they were gambling in the traditional sense. Um, This is honestly no different than when the disciples cast lots to see who the next of the 12 should be. It's the same basic act. They're just doing it in a more visceral sense. Um, Let's see. Ooh, I thought this was interesting. In a teaching on this topic, uh, Pastor Mike Winger, who you can find online, really cool guy, he brought out a very interesting point. Um, He mentioned that it's very uncomfortable for us to think about a Roman soldier who was a party to Jesus' death, potentially wearing Jesus' clothing in the days to follow. But isn't that why he came? To give himself, to provide a covering to the very ones who brought him death. So that was a very cool thought, very cool thing to, to dwell on for a little bit. Uh, 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you may... O oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Um now, After all that visceral imagery, after that prophetic look at Jesus' suffering, um, and remember, Jesus is essentially quoting this while on the cross. Like I said, maybe he's not saying all these words, but in saying that first piece, he is suggesting all of this while he's on the cross. And here we have this, this plea for rescue and a statement of received rescue. David is trusting in God to be faithful and deliver him from the situation he finds himself in. That's why he's, he starts off with the call, you know, save me, save me, save me, I know you save me. You know, it's, it's that kind of a thing. Jesus is literally looking forward to moments from this point. He's literally at the finish line. The end is in sight. Um, That spot there, you have rescued me, or depending on your translation, you have answered me, or you do answer me. Um, uh, David Guzik wrote, uh, knowing that Jesus fulfilled this uh, prophetic psalm, it's fair to wonder just when he could speak or live the fulfillment of these words, you have answered me. Perhaps, though it's impossible to say with certainty, it was while he still hung on the cross, yet after the mysterious, glorious transaction of bearing the sin of mankind. Perhaps it was after the triumphant announcement, it is finished, yet before or even in the warm words, Father into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, those words point to a reestablished sense of fellowship, replacing that prior forsakenness mentioned. Um, I would say to each gospel writer, provides a small part of what happened while Jesus was on the cross. Um, there are seven statements that Jesus made, and I, and I think I put them up there. I wasn't sure if this would work quite well. But Jesus makes seven statements he's on the cross, and to the best of our understanding, they incur in that order. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise to the thief next to him. Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother to John and his mother. And then he starts, you know, he references this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why I noted there that would kick off Psalm 22, 1. And then I submit that his next statement, which is I thirst, lines up very well with the middle of this psalm, Psalm twenty-two fifteen, 15, where he references his extreme thirst. And then it is finished, caps off this psalm. If you read Psalm 22 and end it with Jesus' statements, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I promise you it, it strikes so much differently than it had before. Um, and, that's, and I do recommend taking the time to read this psalm with that in mind and cap it off with Jesus' statement there. So, where are we? Uh, 22 to 24? Yes. Yes. Uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Um, Again, uh, quoting Guzik, Um, We may say that this section of Psalm 22 reflects the primary reason Jesus went to the cross, to glorify and obey his God and Father. Looking at this through David's eyes, He's basically looking forward to the salvation that he absolutely trusts is coming. Uh, And he does not want to make these statements as a bargain, but as a hopeful promise. It's not, if you, God, do X, then I will praise you. Rather, it's, God, I'm so sure that you're going to do X that I cannot wait to tell of it. For Jesus, uh, that opening, that's, that's literally what he did. You know, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That's how he lived his life. He went around declaring and praising God to all who would listen and explaining what was to come. Uh, And note that word's brothers, or possibly brethren, depending on your translation. Uh, Some translations say people, but that word there is a term that's pretty specifically used to describe any sibling relation. It can be extended sometimes to like cousins and things like that, but it's generally for siblings, whether of the same parentage, half-sibling, adopted, whatever. There's a close familial sibling type suggestion in that word used. And I think there's something beautiful here about how Jesus seems to take a hold of the fact that we become brothers and sisters with him through the work that he's actively doing at this point. Um, This call to praise the Lord, Uh, note how it's given to the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Israel. David, of course, means his fellow Jews because that's how they tended to identify themselves. But Paul explains to us, if we read the book of Romans, that that's all of us. We are all the offspring of Jacob and Israel who follow Christ. This statement is to us in that sense. Um, where it says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. We usually use that term, affliction, to talk about disease, um, but why would there be the thought about God despising the afflicted in this sense? Because this is actually about sin. We are all afflicted by sin, yet God has not despised us. He has not hidden his face from us. Uh, This does not mean hiding as in fear, but a purposeful removal of access. Instead, he has heard our cry and provided salvation. Jesus is literally calling to those present with this psalm to consider how he's actively carrying out this psalm at that moment. Um, Alternatively, I'd like to add to that, uh, that still you know, with the realization that affliction is not necessarily disfavor. God may afflict those whom he loves as punishment or discipline. This particular affliction is aimed at the end goal of glorifying God by redeeming the lost. Um, it's uh, the most beautiful and wonderful of afflictions, if you can wrap your head around that concept. 25 and 26, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. From you comes my praise. Uh, David acknowledges, uh, for, for David's side anyway, that what he does, he does before the Lord. If he's going to be exalted, if he's going to be praised, he's taking it as coming from God, not from man. He's not doing it for man, he's doing it for God. Jesus is clarifying that what he's doing at this moment is indeed God's plan, and that God is delighted in the fulfillment of this. So Jesus being exalted through this is the most natural result. Um, Alternatively, uh, it's... I will admit it is hard to follow the flow of the Greek in that phrase, which is why several different translations are a little different there. Um, But it is also possible that this phrasing could be intended to be read as, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly, or even from you comes the theme of my praise. Uh, that first idea, my praise shall be of you, that kind of links back to what was already covered prior in this little verse chunk, praising God before, uh, before all, after his salvation. Um, the second is interesting, the, um, from you comes the theme of my praise, as it almost brings out the concept of God teaching us how to properly praise him for what he's done. Um, I, I do think the, f- the very first way I read it is the most accurate, at least as I read it, but um, I think they all do kind of work a little bit. I kind of like that last one a little bit too. Um, but yeah, I think they're all safe, to, to, safe ways to read it. Um, when he says, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. So for David, as the king, to perform his vows as a king, it would have to be before a people who were not against him. You know, if he, he acknowledges that this can only come from God being feared in his nation, it's also a promise to, to fulfill his vows. He's also made promises to God, and he says, I'm going to keep them. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, is performing his vow on the cross. He is fulfilling the prophecy about him. You know, what is a prophecy but God's word? In this case, a true word describing an event that hadn't occurred yet. Um, But let's not forget that Jesus is God. Therefore, God's prophecy about Jesus' sacrifice is Jesus' vow. And there he is upon the cross carrying out his vow and fulfilling his prophecy. Um, And it only seems natural, I think, to follow up such a thought with a verse like 26, that the the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise him. May your hearts live forever. That's that's very, very typical uh, language for the result of either a good king or the salvation of Christ. 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Um, I don't actually have a lot to add to this one. Uh, This part essentially works the same for both David and Jesus. They're both proclaiming a time when we all basically have no, no... other way to look, but to recognize the lordship of God. David's hoping that this will be with his fellow kingdom in a rightful, you know, kingdom relationship. And Jesus is talking, of course, about when all knees shall bow, you know, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Um, so finally, for 22, before we go on to 23, uh, verses 29 to 31, all the prosperous of the earth shall. Uh, pardon me. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Um, uh, that, that line there I wanted to touch on, even the one who could not keep himself alive. This phrase can be a little tricky. I wanted to address it because I can see how some might think this is weirdly talking about Jesus or, or another individual, um, but basically that line is not pointing to an individual person. Uh, take the prior phrase first, all who go down to the dust, that's everyone who dies, that's everyone, and then continue it. The phrase even the one in our modern vernacular would sound something like even someone. So all who go down to the dust, even someone who can't keep themselves alive. And it's basically continuing the phrase. It's, it's Hebrew poetry you know, as, at its finest kind of structure doubling upon itself. Um, this whole section, I would say, from at least 27 to the end, can really only be taken one way. Uh, I'd submit that even David in this scenario has to be aware that he's speaking of a future hope. Um, though we would now say of course that his hopeful thinking was divinely inspired which I would agree with um, but uh, but look at, look at verse 30 and 31 the, the posterity he talks about the coming generation and what they're going to do um, that they'll proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn um, they're talking forward to us y'all that's, that's that's what we this is to us and this is what we do in carrying forth the message of the gospel um I had considered rereading through it really quick and throwing in that it is finished at the end. I'm not going to do that now for time's sake. I'm just going to jump forward to Psalm 23. But I do recommend that the next time you sit down to read Psalm 22, do it with that in mind. Uh, and I promise you, it's, if you consider it as coming from Jesus' mouth, from the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and you throw in that it is finished at the end, it, it hits so much differently and so much harder. And I love it. Now. Psalm 23, this one should be quick, (laughs) and uh, and then we'll we'll take questions afterwards because this should be very quick. Um, Titled, The Lord is My Shepherd, highly appropriate. Uh, I think it's so interesting that the psalm about Jesus that Jesus quotes on the cross, Psalm 22, arguably one of the most important psalms, if not the most important psalm, is immediately followed by the psalm, the one psalm that just about every Christian is guaranteed to know. Um, So um, what I'm going to try to do is, because this is one that everybody knows, I'm just going to try to provide a little imagery insight to see if we can squeeze out just a little bit more of this psalm, or maybe reclaim a little bit of it from how common it tends to have become. Spurgeon was under the assumption that David wrote this psalm while he was king, looking back on his time as a shepherd. Personally, I think it's very possible during, uh, during due to the simplistic nature of this psalm that it may have been written while he was a shepherd because it really is. It's very simplistic, this psalm. Um, and some of the language in it, he, like I said, Spurgeon thinks he's looking back fondly on his time as a shepherd. I think he may be right there in it. Um, either way, there's no proof. There's no verification. This is just how it, how it comes across to, to us. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and jump in. Verses one to three. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, so my shepherd. Uh, instantly... David identifies himself with sheep, a notoriously stupid animal. Um, I have literally heard stories of people coming around a corner too fast and startling their own sheep to death um, because they are so simple and so dumb, for lack of a better word. Um, David is aware of this. He's keenly aware of this. He was a shepherd. He knows that sheep are utterly dependent upon their shepherd and he defines himself this way, to remove any pride. He removes any self-ownership of his accomplishments by declaring himself a sheep in the pen of the great shepherd. The Lord must be what we depend on or we fail to understand the world we live in. Um, also note the use, as, uh, the use of my, as opposed to our. David places himself firmly in the ownership of the Lord, as in under the Lord's ownership. Um, this is a personal statement. He's not spreading it out. You know, you know well, if I say my, it doesn't sting so bad. If I say our, it doesn't sting so bad because it's collective. No, he says my. He's like, this is me. You can be here too if you want, but I'm going to say this is me. Um, that statement there, I shall not want. This is a declaration. This is not a descriptor. This is not, the Lord is my shepherd, he makes sure I never need anything. This is, he takes care of me, I have made a decision not to want beyond that. This is the idea that you be satisfied with what God has given you. Greed, selfishness, longing, selfish longing, desire, those things feed on our ego, and they drive us to seek to be our own shepherd. Uh, The statement, he makes me to lie in green pastures. Uh, makes me. That's something. Something. Uh, pardon me. Sometimes we need God to knock us down a bit so we can appreciate how great we have it, how beautiful the pastures truly are that He has led us to. Um, also, too, uh, a I forget his name, uh, a shepherd who was also a pastor but a former shepherd, wrote a commentary on this psalm, saying a shepherd's view of Psalm 23, and he notes how it is very difficult to get sheep to calm down because they are very nervy creatures and they tend to be skittish, and if even if the ground is too uneven, they won't lie down. Um, so he's he, he, from another angle, he's talking about how God truly does make our pastures perfect for us. Uh, now, granted, we might not acknowledge that sometimes, but he does. Uh, He leads me beside still waters. I mean, that's pretty clear. I think it's much easier to drink from waters that are not rushing. Um, When we follow Christ and follow him honestly and truly, depending on him as sheep on the shepherd, often we find that then the sustenance of his word flows so much smoother and easier. Um, He leads me in the path of righteousness. Okay, that's clear enough, right? Leads us in living correctly, a path of his holy obedience. But why? For his name's sake. He isn't doing this to make us famous. He isn't doing this because we are so special. He does it because when we obey him, we reflect his glory. God is for God first and foremost. We exist to point back to him. When we don't do that, we fail at life, basically, That's the the reason we exist. Um, When he says, uh, all right, okay, let's look at verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. (coughs) Pardon me. Uh, Valley of the shadow of death. Here we have the image of being in a valley. An extremely low point, right? Where one is already in shadow, unless the sun is directly overhead. Um, but then we get death. Death, as though personified and massive, looms over the valley, casting further shadow. It's the image both of being in darkness, but also being trapped in the in pit, in a crevice, while death itself stares down. Um, but even there, he can say, I will fear no evil. Why? Well, because you, because God is with him. The most fearful situation that he could conjure up at this time um, is not worth his fear if God is there. This is another reason I tend to think that this is David at a young age, because this is the harshest thing that I feel like he can imagine for this psalm. You know, I feel like later on in his career, he would have put something a little more visceral there. <laughs> that's, that's just my opinion. Um, uh, when he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I think we blow past this way too much. Uh, what are the rod and the staff? Well, uh, the rod, that word there suggests a thick, sturdy stick. Think about a, like a cudgel, a bludgeoning stick um, apparently, it was common for shepherds to have, hanging from their belt, something like a, like a police baton, like a truncheon, but just from a, from a good heavy stick they found out in the woods and carved into good smacking shape. Um, and it would be used to both aid and travel where necessary, um, but also to defend the flock. You'd use this stick to beat away wolves, wild dogs, uh, thieves, and other carnivores that might try to snatch a sheep. Um, it's the, the image of God driving away the evil that would assault us. But then he says the staff, right? The shepherd's staff. That's the one you see in pictures usually with the great big hook on the end. Um, that was de- that hook that you see, that was designed to scoop up sheep that had fallen uh, or were straying away from the path. That, that's supposed to call to mind God's correction to us when we mess up. Um, Some people suggest that the rod and the staff are supposed to be taken as the same implement um, but in that case describing the two ways it could be used uh, which is fair. Some, not all shepherds carried a, a smacking stick, but the, the staff that they walked with usually was quite heavy and therefore the hook end would be for catching and correcting and if there was a wolf or something they would turn it around and use the straight end to fight off any attackers. So that's, it still works if they are supposed to mean the same thing. The point is, is that in the same way God is capable of both guiding and caring for us and displaying his wrath to protect us when needed. Uh, David's not afraid of evil because he knows that God will protect him from the evil that may attack him as well as his own inclination to do wrong, Uh, which we actually do see throughout David's life. He lived this. David screwed up all the time, but then God corrected him. When God used the staff, David got back in line, and every now and then, David would get into trouble that he couldn't deal with, and God used the rod and brought him out safely. And finally... Uh, Verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell forever. uh, Pardon me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. Uh, Prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. The table he's referring to is not what we are used to. Our dinner tables are high up. We tend to sit on chairs, raised a foot or two off the ground. Um, They basically sat on the ground, uh, on cushions. Their tables were super low to the ground. When we think of that concept of eating with enemies, we think of that kind of movie imagery, movie poster imagery, of two people sitting at a table, one at each end, eating with one hand but holding a gun on the other under the table, You know that sort of a thing. Um, That doesn't work here. It's, it's not really possible to, what he considers to be eating at a table with people, it's not really possible to dine um, while also being ready to defend yourself, because you dine from a reclined position. The idea here is that you can sit down to a meal, that he can sit down to a meal relaxed, undefended, without fear of those enemies present, that he knows that he's safe, that he can just enjoy that meal. Um, when he says, you anoint my head with oil, uh, if this was written before the major events of his life, David probably was simply referring to the anointing and blessing of God. Um, though if written after, he's referring to when he was literally anointed as king. Um, but either way for us, that's it is that image of God's blessing being poured out upon someone, um, which he then segues into the, my cup overflows. Um, and that that's the imagery of like a wine goblet. You know, the again, that dinner table imagery. Um, wine being something you took uh, part of for both faith-based, pardon me, faith-based ceremony and joyful times. So not only is he able to partake of this wine, a joyful experience while surrounded by enemies, but he has more of it than he can even contain. It's that image of how when we're filled with God's presence, it should be flowing forth. It should be you know, more than we can hold on to. Um, and verse 6 is just a beautiful call forward to the promise to the faithful. You know, even when this life is hard, if your faith is in Jesus, God's goodness is still at the end of the road. His mercy upon you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is still at the end of the road. Um, that all the days of your life, that, that, that extends beyond your physical death. If Jesus is your Savior, those days extend um, into you dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That's all the days of your life. Uh... And that is all I have. Do we have any questions on 22 and 23? Okay, go ahead. Um, in verse 23, or oh my goodness, Psalm, 23? Psalm 23, verse 2. Okay. Um, can you just go back over the skill of ours? Okay, so that's the, uh, again, remember how I said that sheep are fickle? And like even like if the area, if the conditions weren't good, they wouldn't lie down and rest and it would be very frustrating for the shepherd. So that kind of applies to streams too. So like but this is it's a little bit more graspable I would say than the than the the pastures thing. Think about um in like like a, a gentle stream or like a gentle brook, you know, the water's flowing so it's clean, but it's, it's, you know, you could scoop it up, you could reach down and catch it with your hand, you probably, an animal could go drink from it. Now imagine um, like a river that's like really rushing or rapid or even imagine a stream that's running really fast and the water's like splashing and things like that. Um, animals won't typically drink from fast-moving water. It's just it's just too difficult to catch it. Because I don't know if you notice, but most, most animals like the way they lap up water, the way they drink water. Like their mouths work very differently from ours. You know, like dogs, for example, like scoop the water with their tongue, and you know I think cats do it, but the other way. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how sheep do it, but I'd imagine it's probably even something like that. But you know the so if the water is rushing. And if it's moving too fast, it's very difficult for the animal to drink from it. So it's this idea of the perfect place to drink from, you know, um, and that's, and I do think, what I, what I mentioned is that I really do think that's the point of like, it's, it's scripture, you know? It's, it seems, if you look at the Bible without God, it's just kind of like nonsense rushing at you, you know? But God kind of makes it like cool, clear water for us, very pleasant, very calm. Yes? To
0: follow up on that, it is, could waters mean like like our sustenance in any way? Like yeah, oh yeah. Go more into what exactly the waters
1: mean. Like. <laughs> um, I think there's a couple there's a couple uh, kind of images we can draw from that. Um, one, if we take the the two statements together, you know, if we take verse one and two alone. <clears throat> Pardon me, um, shepherd I shall not want makes me lie down in green pastures leads me beside still waters it's, It is that image of full sustenance, because also what do sheep eat? You know they, they eat the grass you know that, so that green pasture implies a pleasant place for them to lie down, to rest, also to fill their bellies, um, and that still waters well that 's the other side of the equation, so that 's everything so it 's god supplying all needs you know the shepherd giving the pasture giving the water that's complete protection for the sheep you know once the sheep has those three things they have the water and the grass for their sustenance and the shepherd to keep them alive and that's what he's saying we get from god there Um, But I think also, you know, if we want to take it a step further, we have this image of lying down in green pastures. What do most people miss in life is peace. They don't have peace. They don't have rest. You get that from a lot of people. That's one of the first things he says you get with God. It's one of the first things that God as your shepherd grants you is the ability to lie down in green pastures. Um, And then, again, I I do point back to the the waters. Water consistently being used in scripture to refer to uh, the life-giving word of God that comes to us. Uh, Once again, it's the total picture. It's what we need. We're getting everything we need from God. Yes? Um, What was that by Matthew Henry? Matthew Henry. Do you remember whereabouts? Verse 6. Verse 6, thank you. Matthew Henry wrote, here we go. Um, if he had not made himself a worm, he could not have been trampled upon as he was. Go ahead. Okay,
0: so it just took me a minute. Um, in, in verse 29 in Psalm 22, what uh, does submit to the word prosperous means there?
1: Uh, okay, twenty-two, twenty-nine. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Um, before him shall bow down all who go into the dust. Okay, so that um, I really think he's giving us a a back and forth to basically say everyone, um, all those who are prosperous in the earth, and um, and then all those who go to the dust. You know, he's saying, look, everybody. It doesn't matter if you're prosperous or you're dead. <laughs> it's kind of a full picture. Everybody will worship before God. Everybody will bow. It's that, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess sort of imagery. Um, that like, those who are prosperous are not too prosperous to, to uh, have to recognize um, that this God deserves worship, and not even death separates you from as well. Yes. Another question is on verse, um, Psalm 22, verse 25. Yes. So I
0: understood specifically when it says my vows perform with perform before those who fear him. Yes. So I understood what you said about how that makes sense in the context of David. Yes. But in the context of Christ, we're saying that his vow was being filled as the events of the crucifixion happened. Who are those who fear him? Because
1: he just seems to be surrounded by those Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think that, once again, calls to the prophetic nature of this passage. Um, his, because, once again, wh- was, what Jesus did was not confined to the time he did it. You know, it's that once and for all. That, that, that action carries forth throughout history in both directions, frankly. So when he does that before those who fear him, that's us. That's us. That's also Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and everybody who looks forward to him. He did that before everybody who has feared him, would fear him, will fear him, does fear him. Yes. One, one more.
0: Sure. On Psalm 23, I was just curious if you have anything to um, submit. I, mean, I, I was just personally struck by when you talked about the, the declaration of I shall not want. Sure. But I just thought it provided a very helpful contrast to how we normally use that term. Oh, yeah. In terms of, you know, declaring Christ to actually physically manifest in something, but this declaration of, like, God will be there. And I, I was just wondering if you have anything to comment on how maybe this song gives us any room to, to reclaim that term appropriately.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I really think so, because I think the problem we run into is that the church, uh, by and large, tends to twist that scripture. Um, And and once again, I don't want to be too harsh in saying this. Um, I think sometimes it's done accidentally. It's done just on a general misunderstanding. Um, But uh, I think often we take that and twist it into, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not have to want um the Lord is my shepherd, I won't ever need to want. And and also they tend to apply to that term want materially. Um, and that's understandable because a lot of times the church, today especially uh, is very wrapped up in the material culture and in the teaching of, unfortunately, uh, so-called pastors out there who want to make everything about us and about our comfort and about our wealth. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's it's good for us to point back to this and point back to the literal words used there he's not saying i shall not have to ever want he's saying i shall not it's it is a declaration i'm not going to you know i and it's and i think that does carry two thoughts within it the thought of i know that he will supply my needs but that should not be t- that's not that greedy wants it's he will supply my needs and then when we wrap that into everything else David has written and we layer it upon itself, we know that the needs are not necessarily, we don't get to twist needs into what makes me comfortable. God decides what our needs are and he will supply us with those. Um, but yeah, I think it also has that, that layer to it of like, I'm not gonna be uh, jealous. I'm not gonna be greedy. I'm not gonna be that. I'm gonna be content with what my shepherd leads me to. All right, any other thoughts or questions? Okay, well then, uh, that's that. All right, thank you all for Thank you for
0: listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.